Well, brethren, it's a joy once again for me to be uh, with you. I enjoyed my uh, Wednesday evening here and was looking forward to, to being with you uh, today. As uh, some of you would have noticed, I'm speaking on two um, related subjects. Uh, the first is thinking it does not pay to serve God. And then the second is knowing that it really pays to serve God. And both of these subjects are coming from Malachi and uh, the second half of that book. So if you could turn with me there, the passage we are looking at is one that in fact has just been read. Uh, so we're beginning from chapter 2, making our way into chapter 3. And then later on this uh, uh, evening, we will start where we will end this morning and then finish off the rest of this letter. Let me give the background for uh, the, uh, the whole of this prophecy. Uh, basically, uh, well, I'm sure you can see that it's the last book in your Old Testament, so that, that part I don't need to get into. But what I really thought I could uh, bring out is the fact that, you know, in the Minor Prophets, you have roughly um, about 9 to 12 of them, and they can easily be clustered into three categories. And the first group are those that were prophesying before the judgment of God fell upon both Israel and, uh, and Judah. And so they were basically pleading with the people of Israel so that they may not end up judged by God. And then you have your, your second uh, category, and it is those that were prophesying during the captivity. So the, the people of Israel have already been judged by God, and so what is now happening there is that it is a ministry to individuals who are rather depressed because of what has happened to them, and so they are, in a way, being told to repent and also being promised wonderful times that will come upon their repentance. And then you have finally the last category in which uh, Malachi is also found. And it's basically where the people of Israel have come back uh, into the promised land. They've returned and now God is addressing them, addressing them in two ways. One, in terms of, again, just promises that this, this is the, the kind of life that I am promising you to live. And then um, the second is basically encouraging them uh, in, so that they can play their part in ensuring that they have a, a better season. And so this is where we find ourselves when we come to uh, the, the book that is named after the prophet Malachi. There are individuals who have come back to the promised land, but evidently they are in a very depressed atmosphere. They are dejected because 
what they were anticipating to see from the promises of God is not happening. And therefore, they, they, um, they, they are basically sitting back and saying, let's live with what is here. There's no need for us to, to throw in our weight in order to bring about a major change. Well, let me take you to the previous two um, prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to, to show you something of the promises that God had for the people of Israel. So if we just quickly turn to the previous two, uh, beginning with Haggai, I won't read much of these, just want to get a bit of bits here and there, some snippets, to show you the, the promises of God. And then I want us to contrast that with where they are. So Haggai is uh, two chapters, and then in the second chapter, verse 7. Chapter 2 of Haggai and verse 7. It says there, And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Over and over again, the Lord of hosts, meaning the almighty God the one who has all the nations, rather the armies of the nations behind him. So he will achieve this. But notice how it speaks about the temple being so glorious that the previous one will be nothing whatsoever. Now, if you've ever read the kind of temple that was put up by Solomon, you should know that such a promise must have been, as we say, out of this world. Let's go to Zechariah quickly and uh, chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. And again, um, we won't read the whole of it, but if you have a Bible like mine, you will notice the subheading, The Coming Peace and Prosperity of Zion. Again, that's a promise. There's going to be a most prosperous time. I begin reading from verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there is that phrase again, old men, and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in, the, in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if 
It is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these people in those days. Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. You can continue in this chapter, but the thing that you will notice the most is again just these promises of God that are glorious. However, when we get to the days in which Malachi was speaking, really it was a very depressing sight. The, the, the Jews were in a state of misery. And uh, part of it was their worship was so corrupt that people were bringing all kinds of uh, diseased animals, blind animals, lame animals. These are the ones they were bringing. And the priests were just collecting them and slaughtering them and offering them to the Lord. There was uh, uh, pastoral uh, failure or unfaithfulness. And by that, I mean the priests were failing to do their work. There was marital unfaithfulness as well um, among the people themselves and so on. So it, it, it was not the kind of glorious picture that had been previously painted. The people were dejected. Part of the dejection is uh, what we find in the accusation that begins the text that we are looking at. Chapter 2 and verse 17. You have worried the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we worried him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he, referring to the Lord, delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? In other words, part of the reason why the people of Israel were in this state of misery was not simply because of, of the outward circumstances in terms of, as I said, corrupted worship and ethical behavior and so on. But it was also simply the fact that individuals who were living lives of open sin and rebellion seemed to get away with it. And those who were trying their best to live lives of holiness and godliness and righteousness are in fact the ones who were suffering, not just persecution, but they were also suffering in terms of what we call today frowning providences. And so they were getting to the point where they were thinking, it does not pay to save the Lord. Therefore, why bother? Why stretch myself? Why, why give myself to, to, to worshiping God 
with, with all that I am, when I am suffering like this, my family is suffering like this, and then those who are in hypocrisy and outward sin seem to be getting away with it. And mind you, there are times when it can be one or two individuals who are speaking like that. But in this particular case, it had become so commonplace that God is viewing this as the common speech among the people of God. You have worried the Lord with your words. You are saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And it's not that he is good, but it looks like that's what God is saying. Because God is not judging them. The truth of the matter is that the moment you, as a child of God, begins to think like this, you can be sure that your commitment to the Lord becomes almost zero. You will go to church, yes, because that's the expected thing to do. And especially if you've got nothing else to do, why die of boredom at home? Let me at least go to church. But you will not really be committed to the things of God. You enter a kind of spiritual boycott. God, I've done my bit. You have failed me. So it's about time I concentrated on my own interests. I will still go to church when I have opportunity, but I will not really give myself to you. Why should I do so? A biblical example of this attitude is found in um, uh, Psalm 73, isn't it? The famous psalm by Esaph, Psalm 73. And uh, he begins by saying, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But remember, this is, he's writing this, he's saying this as he is now writing. Previously, that's not the way he thought. So he tells us the way he initially thought in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says this is now describing those who are wicked. And you can be sure that this would have been what the people in Malachi's day were seeing and consequently concluding it doesn't really pay to save God. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
the scoff and speak with malice loftily the threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And then this is his response. Basically, he is starting a pity party. <laughs> Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. He was really tempted to actually produce these words that it doesn't pay to serve God. So what's God's response to this? When God's people are dejected and miserable and they have therefore lost the zeal and the zest for service and for life. Well, basically, God will not suffer us to be show, so short-sighted. So let's go back to Malachi and this time beginning with chapter 3. Chapter 3. And the answer that God gives to his people here is basically to enter into the New Testament, to, to show the promises that he had for his people that are around the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we read chapter 3, verse 1, we immediately realize that this is pointing to John the Baptist. There it is. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We all know that because that is uh, the statement behind the coming of John the Baptist. In other words, the point that is being brought out there is that ultimately God has an ongoing agenda that goes beyond your day. And yes, it does look like the wicked are prospering. It looks that way for the now. But God is on an agenda that goes beyond the now. And when we follow him further in what he is planning to do, you will not want to be in the shoes of the wicked. And he goes on to show that he is deliberately bringing in a new dispensation in which the, the, the true people of God are being brought into the kingdom and those who are living a life of sin will pay for it. It is a matter of time. And that's what was read for us earlier, 
And so let me quickly again take us through that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now the refiner's bit, you remember, John the Baptist actually made that statement. That the one that I am as it were coming before is, is one who, me, I'm baptizing you with water, but when he comes, he'll baptize you with fire and the Holy Ghost. And it is this refiner's fire that he was speaking about here. He also said that he will be with a winnowing fork. And that winnowing fork basically separates the wheat from the chaff. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And this will be the result. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, and this is picture language of the true people of God, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. In other words, God is not blind to what is happening. He's not. He's got an agenda of grace that is coming when he will separate the true from the false. And that true that he is bringing in will in fact give him the worship that he truly deserves. A worship that he will be truly pleased with. It is a matter of time. And when he has done it, he will now punish the false. Verse 5 down. Well, just verse 5 for now. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. At that point, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who, who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hard worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, that is the visitor, uh, the foreigner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, don't think that the wicked will actually get away with it. It's a matter of I'm busy doing something in the background whereby there will be true worship and at that time I will punish the false. Isn't that what Asaph discovered? If we can now go back to Psalm 73 when he entered the sanctuary of God and then he saw the destiny to which these individuals he was admiring are going. 
verse 16, back to Psalm 73. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I descend there. And not their present. The present, yes, they are obviously individuals who seem to be having the best of their lives. But when I now see the end, I don't admire them. Look at verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In other words, there is a day of slaughter you have set aside they will pay for their sins. And it was when he realized that, that he was no longer envying the arrogant. He was no longer envying the wicked because he now saw how blessed he was compared to them. Look at the way he puts it there in verse 21, still Psalm 73. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. These are the blessings he has. You hold my right hand. In other words, you uphold me, even in the midst of all these trials. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. The picture has changed he begins to realize just how blessed he truly is. And then he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, it is when we have this eschatological view that we begin to realize we are a truly blessed people. Yes, the present circumstances might seem to look like sinners are getting away with it. They won't. The God who sits on the throne of heaven is a righteous God. He will punish the wicked. But that's not where this story ends. It is the Lord goes one step further with his people. And basically, he is addressing something that becomes a lifestyle for those who think that it doesn't pay to save God. And it is this. They don't just remain neutral. No, they begin to rob God of that which truly belongs to him. And that's what he now goes on to address here. In verse 6 and verse 7, God is basically 
saying he is still committed to them because he does not change. In the light of the way they are currently living, if he was a God who changes, he would snuff them off the face of the earth. Verse 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And then they are asking, how shall we return? So his answer to them is quite simple. They had become, for lack of a better term, practical atheists. In other words, theoretically, they were still the people of God. But in practice, they were now living as if God did not exist. As if God did not know their thoughts. As if God did not know their sins of omission. They were now not doing what they are supposed to be doing as the people of God. They were now living out a religion that cost them nothing. And this is what God comes to in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. Isn't it true that often when your heart goes cold towards God, the first area that you withdraw is not so much your church going. You still do. It's the pocket. That's where things change. I love a statement that was made by um, John Wesley that the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. <laughs> Often that's where it shows whether somebody is genuinely still committed to God or not. We can all sing hymns. We can all do that. Come behold the wondrous mystery. We can all do that. When actually, in reality, we have stopped beholding the wondrous mystery from the pocket. Long stop doing that. But with words, we can all still continue doing so. It is after that that then other areas begin to fail. Opportunities for evangelism and church ministries we begin to hold back. Those extra meetings of the church that have to do with discipleship, being taught the deeper things of God, we also again begin to hold back. We've already begun holding back the finances. And so God is saying, that's what you're doing. You are robbing me of my time in your life, and my money in your life, and whatever service is supposed to be there in your life for me, 
because of being dejected. But friends, how can God's work go forward when God's people are holding back the very means by which God's work is supposed to flourish? We are the very ones who are often complaining and yet we are the cause of the lack of that prosperity, advancement in the kingdom of God. That's what God goes on to challenge the people about in verse 9 to the end. He says, to verse 12 rather, he says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, let's be clear. That's part of the fact that God does not change. The curse he's talking about here is not one that speaks in terms of destruction. Otherwise, they would have been utterly destroyed. But it is a curse that speaks of uh, them being disciplined, them being chastised, so that their, their very lives are not knowing something of true joy, fulfillment, and prosperity in that sense. God is frustrating them. And so he puts it this way in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And this is a picture because the Levites were functioning off the tithes that were being brought by the people of God. And now that the, the entire priesthood system was literally on its knees because the people of God were not doing their part. And so he is saying, bring them in and see that there will be food in my house. So it is real food he's referring to there. And then he says, test me. Put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing that there is no more need. And that phrase, no more need, is referring to the fact that you don't even have a place to store anymore. Such a bumper harvest that you are now the very one saying, stop, stop. We have too much. Stop. He's saying, see, whether I will not do that for you. I will come in and prove to be a blessing. And obviously all this is Old Testament language. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail, says the Lord of hosts. So this is the way I will act. I will change the situation within the context of uh, Jerusalem and within the context of the temple itself that obviously at this point they had put something together, nothing compared to what was there previously. And then it says here in verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed. 
for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, that same picture we're seeing in um, Haggai and in Zechariah, he is saying, do you know why those promises have not been realized? So because of me, God is saying, ah, ah. It's because of you. While you have this mentality that it does not pay to serve the Lord, what you've been doing in actual fact has been to rob me. You've been holding back. I have been blessing you so that through you, my temple, my worship might be truly blessed. But what's been happening is that you've been holding back that which is your contribution. And what has happened is that I have also therefore decided I'm going to chastise you. As a result, we are in this kind of stalemate relationship. You are complaining, saying the wicked are prospering, when what you really should be doing is Believing in me. Believe my ways. Believe my promises. And you will see the change that will happen. Let's apply this to ourselves today. In a sense, knowing how Christians function, I'm pretty sure you've already been applying it in your own mind. So praise the Lord for that. But let's, let's work this together. Often, when the church is not impacting the world, when we are not experiencing revival and renewal and refreshment, we tend to blame it on God, don't we? God, why are you not answering our prayers? Uh, here we are praying and praying and praying and you don't seem to be answering. And therefore, the church is weak. The, the church is ending up being so worldly. It's, it's in the, there's more of, of the world in the church than the church in the world. What's wrong with you, God? We seem to be saying. But are we sure the problem is with God? Perhaps the problem is with us as God's people. That somewhere in our private lives, we have actually concluded that it doesn't pay to save God. To throw your everything into God, his service, and his worship. And therefore, we have held back. We are watching. But God is also watching. And he is saying, until you start relating to me as I truly am, 
because I am a great God, I will hold back my blessing. Could it be that I'm speaking this morning to somebody who is in the position in which the elder brother to the prodigal son was? That because you have concluded that God is not being a blessing in your life, that you have now entered into that boycott that he entered into when he saw the way in which this younger brother of his, who had squandered his father's wealth with prostitutes, was now being given a, a, a glorious welcome. He was now the center of attention and Perhaps today you are in that position where you are bitter with God, really bitter. That despite the way you have tried to live, God's blessing seems to have gone right past you and gone to others who really should have deserved the wrath And so you too are in that position where you are saying it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. And all I can do today is to, to pray that God may open your eyes the way he opened the eyes of Asaph. That you may stop looking primarily at your circumstances today. And that you may truly believe the promises of God. Because, you know, it's like being a, an animal, a cow. And you are envying your fellow cow that is being given the best of straw. And, and everything else. And therefore, your fellow cow is, is growing fatter and fatter and fatter while you are lean. And, and you are envying. Until somebody comes through and as he's admiring this fat neighbor of yours, the cow, he is saying, yeah, I think that party that we've been planning for He's almost ready for the slaughter. Then suddenly, you realize, wow, I'm blessed. <laughs> the reason why this guy has been receiving all this is because of the party that's coming. So although they have not yet come, to collect your neighbor for the slaughter, the next time they bring in that rich hair, you're thinking, <laughs> give it to him, please. <laughs> give it to him, give it to him. 
this, that's the picture here. Don't look at the present. Look at what God says. He's got this agenda across history. Look at what he says. And when God opens your eyes, go to Christ and ask him to forgive you for your blindness. Go to Christ and thank him for opening your eyes. Go to Christ and say to him, thank you for the great and glorious promises you have made, which will remain true, yea, and amen, in Christ. And then resolve today to give him your everything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the way in which you addressed your people in the days of Malachi, that they might have that thought in them rebuked. The thought that it does not pay to save the Lord. Lord, help us who may be thinking thus, especially because of going through rough and difficult times. Help us to see that you've loved us with an everlasting love. That in Christ you have promises for us that are so glorious, we, can, we cannot even begin to recount them. Cause us today to renew our faith in you. To renew our commitment to you. To renew our devotion to you. That we might begin to give to you our treasure, our time, and our talent once again. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, we now enter into a time of communion, and I'll ask my brother Chris to uh, distribute the, the emblems. And uh, once again, we invite all those who having recognized their own sin, having recognized their own rebellion, have truly come to Christ and embraced him as Lord and Savior. Uh, if you are such an individual, uh, you do not need to be uh, our church member. We warmly and gladly welcome you to the Lord's table. Uh, I think that there's one of those you know, modern hymns that we sing that says there is no more for heaven to give. Now, it's a reference to what God has given us in Christ. He has given us the best. He has given us what no other blessing could be compared with. He has given us his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And uh, at a time like this, we really, really ought to be thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world on a mission to fulfill that agenda. And, and the central piece of that agenda was to come and suffer and bleed and die for sinners like us. And that is the reason why he has commanded us that whenever we meet, we are to remember what he has done for us. And remember also that uh, according to the New Testament, indeed according to the Bible, the true measure for us to see how God loves us is not so much the changing circumstances of our lives or what we have or do not have as we live in this world, but rather that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. This is how God proves his love for us in that while we're still sinners, while we're still rebellious, while we're still living a life in which we did not care whether God existed or not, while we're like that, that is when the Lord Jesus Christ came and gave his life a ransom for many. That is when the Lord Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross and took our place and suffered the judgment that we rightly deserved. And he carried our sins and he carried our sorrows. So this is the reason why again and again we have this meal. It is to remind us of this particular item on God's agenda. The central piece of God's agenda is that fullness of time when Son of God who was made under the law and he died for us. And when the apostle writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance Let's pause for prayer. Our gracious and loving Father, we thank you that uh, in your wisdom you saw it fit to institute this Lord's Supper and through this visual to remind us again and again that there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin 
only he, the Lord Jesus, could unlock the gate. And even for him, it had to take the cross. And so he willingly gave his life over in death in order that guilty and worthy sinners like us might find pardon and cleansing and forgiveness and acceptance with God. So we do want to thank you for that broken body. And we thank you that that is in fact what the entire Old Testament was teaching your people. That there is going to be a lamb that will take away the sin of the world. That all those shadows find their full fulfillment in the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth on that accursed tree, on that cross outside of Jerusalem. We thank you that this morning we can be reminded. And as we are reminded, we ask that if there be any in our midst, many who are still strangers to this grace of God, this visual may be that occasion and opportunity by which they are drawn to the Savior and cling to him and be saved. Once again, we pray that our meditation in this hour will be pleasing in your sight. And grant that it might remind us of how much we all, in the words of Isaac White's the hymn writer, we might be able to say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my own. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's eat the bread together and be thankful. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. I'll ask us to stand as we come to the end and sing our closing hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord.
And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.